0: Good morning, everyone. We're live at the cafe of Office Hours. And I have my two sous chefs, the amazing Mikes. They're stirring up breakfast for everybody here on Office Hours. Michael Unbroken and the OG himself, the originator the show, would not be here but for the inspiration that Mike Diamond gave me years and years ago as we have surpassed 500 episodes of Office Hours, (laughs) over 200 episodes on TV. We'll be filming Office Hours again for Apple TV in November. So mark your uh, calendars, gentlemen. You know that you're always included, of course. uh, And we will be filming that at the Wynn Hotel at our studio there. And in fact, that's I'm in Indy right now trying to expand the studio situation for the Meltzer Empire. We're hopefully going to put one into the Lucas Oil field here. Uh, like we have at SoFi. So just having a good time. Uh, Anyway, as we wait for Jay to come on, you know, I always like to start with takeaways. And I'm going to start with my takeaway and kind of get your opinion on mine and and also share yours. So um, one of the epiphanies I had is about AI. And, you know, I'm a, a big fan of posting a ton of content and I've always uh, transcribed my content, even when it was expensive, before AI, but to put words behind my videos and my audios because words are searchable. And that was a blessing or a secret that I learned from West Publishing and Boolean language word searching, of how critical it is to have words tied to audio and, and video. One of the epiphanies that I had that will set a huge separation, especially uh, with people like us, is to make sure that you're posting, even privately or on a, a non-promoted uh, account, every single piece of content that you have. Uh, and I'll tell you why. Because AI, chat, GPT, uh, it scours the entire internet at a speed uh, even faster than light, and uh, maybe faster than thought. Believe it or not, I'm trying to uh, equate in physics and quantum physics how quickly uh, we search the internet comparatively to the speed of thought uh, because eventually it is part of the unified system of thought. But I'm not going to go into there. But think about this: because I have so much content posted publicly and in non-published places uh, or non, you know, promoted places, I should say, because they are there. You know, it's like at David Meltzer TV, you know, or, or something that we don't promote. I can now write a book and get from zero to one, and 99 to 100, which will create an extraordinary separation between me and anyone else trying to uh, create content in my space, why? Because there's so much content there that I literally now can say, hey, I wanna write a book called Don't Do Business with Dicks, I want the 10 chapters, 350 pages, I want a full table of contents, a forward, an intro, and a conclusion. I want the first chapter to be about this, use stories like this, And please write, you know, in chapter two and so on and write the book as if I'm David Meltzer, speaker, author, entrepreneur, write the book as if I'm David Meltzer, sports humanitarian, legendary sports executive, the winner of the Ellis Island Medal of Honor, uh, you you know, philanthropist, whatever, however, whatever Dave Meltzer tone I want to take, not even just as Dave Meltzer. And I can get from zero to one or zero in the first month faster than six months of work. And most people on earth will not have enough content posted to have it be impactful where they're not just writing it anyway. It's just an outline, as ChatGPT will do for anyone. But I actually have a huge advantage because I'm posting every single th- single thing of content. So I want to encourage uh, both of you with my takeaway and maybe even get your thoughts relative to, you know, content and posting Promoted content in posting unpromoted content.
1: Yeah, I mean that that makes a, a ton of sense to me. It's funny as if I chat GTP myself, um, <laughs> then the the things that alert. And sorry about the voice. We we're at game five last night, David. And uh, didn't oh, get, congrats, man! It was amazing. It, it was incredible. So if I'm a little raspy today, that's why. <clears throat> um, so yeah, you know, I I did chat GTP on myself as Michael Unbroken the brand, and I had it describe who I am, what I do, how I do it, why I do it. And and it was almost more articulate than I could be. I mean, it was absolutely incredible. And now between the social media, the podcasts, reels, channels, etc. I mean, we we have a total of over 15000 pieces of content on the Internet. And I think you're spot on that, you know, people who do not have this amount of content or not publishing frequently are missing a huge opportunity to use AI when it comes to being able to not only shortcut but circumvent a lot of the things that I think become barriers from doing some things that could actually be super simple, right? I mean, I, I've always looked at it and said, you know, I want to write a book a year until I die. Well, chat GTP, maybe I'll write two, one, let them do it and I'll do the other one. Nice.
2: Yeah, I have to agree with you. It's funny. I was watching a clip of an old friend of mine, uh, Desmond Child, and I never really understood. I was writing songs with him back in 1997, and he's written 9,000 songs. Out of 9,000, were actually, 3,000 were recorded. Out of 3,000 3, being recorded, 200 have made it to the top 100. And he said it took 9,000 songs. And I was sitting in his studio back in 1997, and he would tell me, go write another song, go write another song, go write another song. And I'm like, this guy's an asshole. Why do I keep writing these songs? But it took him 9,000. He wrote Living on a Prayer. He wrote all these hits. He wrote for Slade, Beyond. And like you're saying, it's the same method. He would just make me sit there for hours and write lyrics and songs. I thought it was the dumbest thing before there was chat and all this stuff. But what you're saying is the same thing. Someone called me the day and said, hey, can we start transcribing your stuff? I'm like, why? They're like, you have so many podcasts out. I go, I do? They're like, you don't even realize some of the stuff is out there. So you're so right. If you're not putting it out there and putting it out there and putting it out there and creating this and creating that, you get stuck instead of just keep creating. And eventually, you know, I don't know what I'm going to say to you that's going to spark you. And you don't know what you're going to say to me that's going to spark me. So you're 100% right. It's so true.
0: And then people amplify it for you as well. So, you know, you're posting shit of mine. I'm posting shit of yours. And so if you have 15,000 pieces of content, you probably have 150,000 searchable pieces that have been cut or stitched or utilized or talked about. And so, and it learns from that. So it gets better. Like Michael said, it actually is a better representation or I would say it represents you much better, especially in the initial stages of creating content that, you know, I love the zero to one and 99 to 100. In the middle, you still got to make it yours. It has to carry your frequency, your essence, et cetera. Um, all right, now, second issue, I'm on the plane uh, to Indy yesterday. And have either of you seen the documentary on Little Richard? No. no. I highly suggest it for everyone out there. So Little Richard is the king of rock and roll. He created rock and roll. I mean, it shows how Mick Jagger and the Be- Rolling Stones, the Beatles, uh, like it's an amazing thing and uh, I think it's a really interesting thing about the truth that everyone has their truth and even as I'm watching it learning all these things about Little Richard I was thinking to myself this is still just one producers perception of Little Richard's truth even though there's factually some things there I would also question you know what facts are true and whatnot but it's an incredible documentary anyway There he is, never late to the party, the incredible philanthropist, humanitarian, surprisingly a lawyer like me, uh, which we don't usually find those words in the same sentence, Uh, but Big J is here. J Rosenzweig, welcome to Office Hours. Oh, got to unmute, sorry. Jay's on mute. All right. I wonder if he was, I wonder... Uh, Luke, are we muted? Can you hear him?
2: He's on mute. right. Hi, guys. Hi, David.
0: Hey, thank you very much for your patience. Great to see you. And, uh, you know, we have uh, a great entrepreneur, in my opinion, one of the greatest because he gets it when it comes to compassionate capitalism. Um, Jay, you know, with your background in law and business and entrepreneurship, what has really driven you to have such a great humanitarian perspective and still be a capitalist?
3: Yeah, for me, it's it's kind of all interconnected. I, I grew up, um, uh, fortunately, with wonderful parents um, who were very welcoming to all people. We grew up with a home that uh, didn't have a lock on the door we didn't have alarms. people were coming and going and and my parents taught me to really be compassionate and empathetic to all people uh and my dad was you know, um unfortunately he he was in a position um in his family circumstances and given His dad, uh, having uh, come from uh, Romania in the early 1900s as an entrepreneur and and suffered through the depression, that he wasn't able to go to university, but he always loved electronics. Um, So he was pushing um, wheelbarrows up and down uh, the street in Montreal, um, fixing people's radios and fixing electronics and eventually starting his own electrical business uh, at the age of 20. Um, so I learned from him entrepreneurship, but I also learned from him, my mom, the importance of compassion. Um, and uh, I noticed um, how exciting it was to be an entrepreneur, and I always wanted to be, but I was wanted to give back at the same time. And when I was in law school, I met a really important mentor named Irwin Kotler, who was a professor there who represented people like Nelson Mandela uh, 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 and the Tan Sharansky, really, really, really fighting for the most important human rights causes of the Soviet jury and apartheid. And uh, he inspired me uh, to, to, do, uh, to do more from the human rights point of view, and we became great friends. And ultimately, uh, he became Canada's Attorney General and Minister of Justice, where he united all kinds of progressive laws and freed more people who were wrongfully convicted. And when he left Parliament, he invited me to establish the established Wallenberg Center for Human Rights, which um, uh, really represents Nelson Mandela today all around the world. Um, and it's been a, an amazing ride for me to combine the entrepreneurship and the giving back. I also invest in, um, in technologies that have major impact. So um, doing uh, investments and helping companies to grow, that are at the intersection of profit and purpose is something that really, really excites me.
2: Jay, um, you said two important things, good influences, parents, and then a good mentor. Um, When you're trying to help people get out of that scarcity mindset and be more compassionate, do you try to explain to them the importance of having good influences?
3: Absolutely. I, I always recommend to young people to seek out role models um, who, uh, who actually make a difference in the world. Um, and people often ask me, like, what can one really do in a world that appears to be so cynical and, and, even, indifference, and, and even indifferent? Like, how can I make a difference in the world? And my, my teacher back in law school taught me, because I asked him the same questions, that um, one way of looking at it is to heed heed to the wise words of the great sage Maimonides who who taught us that we should look at the world as if it is half good and half evil. Um, And I tell this to my kids now, then one good deed, whether it be Helping a friend with homework or, or helping someone cross the street or calling a grandparent to say hi. That one good deep sense we have really up for the better. And that's something that really sticks with me. Um, that, uh, And in addition to that, when we, we do good in the world, it actually enhances us simple if you want joy enhance your life immeasurably
1: yeah jay that's so incredibly true and and you know i think that when we do have those people like you in the world we're exponentially changing it i mean on a daily basis and the impact we get to have is incredible well, you know one of the things that you do obviously that i think is a, a huge deal is your annual report on uh equality As we head further and closer into a connected society, can you talk about not only the importance of the report and why you do it, but how we can be more equal as a whole as a community as a society as leaders as entrepreneurs. Did we lose Jay?
0: Yeah, I think he's frozen. Can you guys hear me okay, too? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think he got frozen. Yeah,
3: absolutely. Uh, oh, there he goes. Can you, can you hear me?
1: Okay. There we
3: go. So, so, so this professor of mine, can you hear me now? So, my pro, this professor of mine, um, when he was in parliament, he was the first first man on the Women's Caucus. Uh, um, and he tra- transformed our Supreme Court into the most gender representative in the world. Uh, and this really is actually um, uh, looking to be in business. Um, I decided, why not look at uh, what the status is of women in the business world? Uh, and being here based in Canada, what I did was I, I, I decided. To look, look at, um, And I think it's similar in the United States, every public company has. So um, I decided to look at the 100 largest publicly traded companies in Canada and look at the five top paid executives within each of these companies. So the 500 top paid executives in Canada to understand what is the status of women in business. Um, and uh, I measured the percentage of women in those uh, businesses and I, I i figured the numbers would be low but i didn't realize they'd be that low this was back in 2006 and it turned out that the percentage of women in these top jobs in canada was 4.6 percent and this really really surprised me and from that point on i determined to continue doing this work Uh, and until hopefully uh, one day I worked my way I'm doing this for 18 years now, um, and, and uh, advocating for women in leadership, um, and what I've been doing over the last number to uh, to uh, greater geographies and and bringing. Americans into the into the discussion and Europeans and um, dedicated the report to the brave women of Iran and women fighting uh, for freedom all around the world. Um, so if you look at my 18th annual report, you'll see contributions and endorsements from Prime Minister Trudeau to um, Deepak Chopra to Mark Cuban, Lisa Milano, uh, Sheryl Sandberg. And um, it's just a very, very... Important project for me, but um, if if a business person can't, business people understand bottom line. What I do for them is I present to them the, the business case. Um, there's Harvard studies in that regard, McKinsey and Company studies, which indicate that the greater diversity at the top levels of corporate of the corporate world, the greater the business results. So if one can really, uh, business people can understand the business imperative. We are
0: how's, the, uh,
3: how's the Wi-Fi? Are we doing okay on the Wi-Fi?
0: Yeah, it's the Canadian Wi-Fi. You know, Rogers is uh, not quite up to the Verizon standards, but we're okay, <laughs> we'll see you. We'll see you in person up there uh, in Toronto for Collision. Uh, but we are honored and blessed to have you here. Yeah, and man, sorry. You- it's good. It's good. We're, we'll have you back. We have many, many shows Mike and Mike in the morning. Uh, you know, they're not just on ESPN. They're here on office hours. So we, we do a lot and you're our type of guy. Uh, we're honored uh, to have you as part of our posse. Thanks, man. Please come back. I'll, I'll see you in a couple of weeks in collision. Thank you so much, Jay. We'll see you soon. Awesome. Jay Rosenweig, everybody. He's amazing. Uh, all right. Karen's waiting in the wings and, uh, there she is. Look at that smile. Good morning, Karen. Hello. How are you?
4: I am great. How are you all?
0: Amazing. Well, you are in the right place. Uh, as much as your internet is connected, uh, you are an expert at one of the things I think is essential to life, which is telling a story to teach lessons. And you are the chief storyteller. And Karen Eber is where you go to uh, learn about the importance, not of just of stories, but of telling those stories. So I want to start. Uh, with, you know, where did that come into play for you? Because it took late in my career, even as I was speaking on stages, to realize uh, how important it was uh, when I was a child to hear the same story again and again. And, uh, you know, it's not just telling a story, it's the way we tell the story, it's the purpose of the story, but it's also the repetition of the story. So I'd love to hear kind of where and when storytelling Uh, really took impetus or uh, took a priority in in what you do?
4: It started really early in my life. I was born with blue eyes like most kids, but around the time I was four months, my eyes turned two different colors. One's brown and one's green. And it's something I've always loved about myself, but I learned that not everyone found it as unique and special. Doctors Mm -hmm. were telling me that they could fix it for me, or people were telling me, oh, I know a dog like that. And I thought, like, this thing that is so special to me is something that people don't know what to do with and they view as a problem. And I could notice the moment in conversation where people's eyes go back and forth between my eyes and they uh, slowly stop their conversation. And they reach this moment where they say, did you know you have two different color eyes And I would feel like I was on display. I would feel like I'm a sideshow in the circus, expected to perform. And after this happened so many different times, I thought this thing that I love makes me feel awful and I don't want to feel bad about it. So I told this story about around the time I was five years old, I was in my room coloring one night. We have that big box of crayons that you have your perfect ones, your peeled ones, your broken ones. Well, I'm coloring away, and I was hungry. Dinner wasn't going to be for a few hours, so I picked up a green crayon, and I sniffed it, and it it smelled pretty good. And I took a nibble, and it tasted pretty good. So I ate all the green crayons in the box, and the next day, I woke up, and my one my brown eyes turned to brown and green. So I would tell that story, and then I would be quiet, and I would see the impact, which was always a little bit of like skepticism and people trying to guess, is she telling the truth here? But what happened is that I would, of course, admit I didn't need the crayons, but it would create the shift in energy and it would create a different dialogue where we would connect and interact in a different way and people would start to relate to me as a human and not a thing like they were a few minutes before. So I realized really early on, like, wow, stories aren't just this fun thing they can change an interaction. They can change a relationship. And so throughout my career, I've worked as a head of culture and a business in General Electric and a head of leadership development in Deloitte. I found that I was in these positions where I was trying to influence people to make investments or make um, purchases where very few people could say yes and many people could say no. And stories were a way to slow the no and influence the yeses.
2: Karen, that's such an incredible story. I am... Um... I read a book, um, we'll talk about your book, uh, which talks about you were one of the producers of the moth stories that started in New York. Yes. And I remember years ago uh, seeing a moth story and I love how they're not just a simple hero's journey formula and everyone's story is unique and, and, and different, like your story and I love how you did that. When someone first gets on that journey because it's so hard to get a safe community and the moth's a perfect example of how it is a safe community to tell stories. You know, I started telling my story honestly in in uh, AA meetings because it was safe. When I'm in recovery. How does someone first start off to find that that uh, that that place where you know the community will just give you that leeway to be open and honest?
4: Well, one of the things I love about the Moth is they claim they're not a storytelling organization; they're a story listening organization. Mm-hmm. And it is that environment that they're creating that makes it so people want to listen. I help people tell stories in all facets of life and tell a range of stories from the most personal story a person might have to an origin story about a company. And so I love to guide people to every story is personal. You're bringing your perspective to it. You're telling it. And only you can tell a story the way that you can, even if you're telling someone else's story. But personal doesn't mean private. So no one has to be sharing something that feels too private to put on the air to millions of people, but they are going to bring their perspective to it that makes it personal. And so when we start there, people recognize, oh, there's a lot of autonomy in the story that I'm telling and how I tell it and how I make it personal. So I have a TED Talk that was really popular, and I don't tell any stories about myself in it, but I tell stories about... Uh, there's an opening story about someone dropping a phone down an elevator shaft and Walt Benninger, the CEO of Charles Schwab, um, failing an exam. And the way I tell it, it's personal because I'm putting my perspective into it, but it's a story about others. And so we try to find those opportunities to just start telling stories, even if about a topic not personal to yourself, so that people can see that reaction and recognize that this can be really comfortable and everyone is going to respond to what I'm saying.
1: Yeah, Karen, I love that. And I I think that storytelling, I mean, if you look at humanity's evolution, it's always been the we're sitting around the campfire connecting. And what I'm curious about in, in a time where we are the most connected, but simultaneously the most disconnected, Um, How in the world can you be an effective storyteller? What what I'm really curious about, especially as someone who is a a podcast host and a public speaker, and I've been on many stages is you, you see, even in those moments, one of the things I always push people to, I'm like, put your phone down while I'm talking to you, right? And so it's like, how do you get people in a connected world who are also disconnected to connect to your storytelling? How do you stand out when there's so much noise, there's so much of an echo chamber, there's so much chaos in the marketplace.
4: So the good news is there's a lot of science behind storytelling that makes that possible. You can hack the art of storytelling. We hear so much tell a story or a story time on social media, but not all stories are created equal. We've all sat through boring stories from relatives or flipped past something on social media because it just didn't have that draw. And that's because it didn't engage enough of your brain. And so there are different things that our brain will do when listening to stories and communication that you can start to pull these levers and make a difference. And I love to call them the five factory settings of the brain, which is things that you lean into that are going to make a difference in your story. So- One of them, for example, is your brain is lazy. The number one goal of the brain is to keep you alive. And when it does, it high fives you and says, that's amazing. Do the exact same thing the exact same way you did yesterday because you're alive. So it worked it wants to conserve calories because if the brain bankrupts itself of calories, you're not alive. So that's not good. And your brain is using the most calories out of any organ in your body. So your brain is always looking for where can it conserve calories. So this is when you might, your mind drifts off when you're listening to someone talk um, or a show doesn't hold your attention or a book doesn't hold your attention. Your brain just says it's not worth the calorie spend or the the days you come home and you just think, I don't want to think. And you put on the show that you've seen so many times. So when you're telling a story, you want to force the brain to spend calories. You want to put in unexpected events that are going to make the brain hit that speed bump and go, "Oh, I didn't I didn't expect that." you want to maybe sequence the story in a way that is not so obvious, doesn't allow for assumptions. You want to put in really specific details or engage senses and emotions. And so you then are starting to pull these different levers that are going to engage more brain functionality and improve the experience for the listener.
2: Okay. So quickly, let's just jump into the book. Um, you got the new book, The Perfect Story and how to tell stories. Do you want to chat about it right now and just tell us how, when is the book out? The book is out now, right? Correct?
4: It is in pre-order now. It comes out October 3rd. I wrote it because I want people to recognize storytelling as accessible. Wherever you are in life, if you want to be a better storyteller, this is going to ground you in what's happening in your brain, but not in a really sciencey way. It's things like your brain is lazy and help you think about what to do about it, but then it takes you through where can you find these ideas? How do you think about your audience when you're telling a story, a structure, for those in the business world that have to tell stories with data, it talks about that. Um, it gets into some of the physical aspects of telling a story because your body is a piece of the story, too. And even gets into how do you make sure you're not manipulating your in your stories and, and how do you navigate the vulnerability? Amazing. And one that thing is- just to share that I love, you mentioned them off. I think we can learn from so many different storytellers. So at the end of each chapter are these interview vignettes with people that tell stories in different ways. So one is an executive producer at The Moth, a former creative director at Pixar, a host of TED Radio Hour, a Sundance Institute founder. And each of these give a little snapshot into their world in storytelling, which is really fun to see the different perspectives.
1: It's amazing.
2: You're on mute, Mike. Mike,
1: muted. That's a new one for me. Um, Normally I'm always loud. Um, (laughs) If you were to put a bow around it in in terms of when you look at effective storytelling in in a sentence or two, what are the things that people are doing that makes them stand out?
4: First is recognizing your stories begin with your audience and not with the idea, because each time you tell a story, it's gonna be different to the audience you're telling it to, which means you wanna think about who am I sharing this with and what is important for them to know. That will help you land the story that's going to be most meaningful to people you're telling it to. And it also means one story could be told so many different ways. That is a piece of it. The second piece of it is once you're really clear on the audience, you're not just telling that formulaic story. You are really trying to engage the brain by making the person feel like they're there, making them feel like they're next to you in the story, seeing, hearing, feeling, experiencing what you went through and building and releasing tension throughout the story.
1: Mm, love that. And and Karen, obviously with the new book, where can people find it and learn more about you?
4: Yeah. Book anywhere books are sold. It is available. There's an ebook, audio book, hard copy, and my website is the best way to reach me. It's my name. And there's all sorts of information there as well on the book.
1: Amazing. Karen, thank you so much. We appreciate you. I know Dave appreciates you. I'm sure he'll pop back on here and we'll be sure to have you on again, our friend.
4: Thank you so much.
2: All right, Mikey, our next guest is Matt Doyle. There he is.
4: Hey, hey everybody, how's it
2: going? Good. How are you, sir?
5: Not too bad, not too bad. How's the morning How been going so far? Lots of good people. Oh,
2: I'm, I'm good. You're great. Where are you in the world?
5: Um, as you can tell from the accent, I'm from Austin, Texas. I'm living in Austin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm originally from the UK, but I've been here about four years now. <clears throat>
2: Nice, nice. Well, I see the guitars in the background, so let's jump right into it. Um, you're the CEO and founder of Array Consulting Group, correct?
5: Yeah, we're uh, we're part the, com- the main company is Array, uh, which is buildarray.com, and it's like Google Forms but on steroids. So we work with big enterprise companies like Walmart or insurance companies for collecting data in the field. Yeah, so this is a very this is
2: great. This is such a great field to be talking about. So what makes your company on
5: steroids compared to the other companies, and why should people be looking at your company? So, we never called ourselves coolforms.com because we were never going to be forms at the core of what we do. <clears throat> but um, so if someone's trying to use Google Forms to do this type of enterprise stuff, it just won't work. You know, you need things like very advanced conditional logic or calculations. You know, we're calculating things for insurance companies and things like that. So and the idea is that you don't have to be an IT person to be able to use it. We want normal operations teams to be able to use it. Um and make them look like the hero in the company because they can solve these problems that they've got.
1: Matt, what are the problems that people are solving with the software?
5: Yeah, like, so we tend to work with field teams. So that means people work in remote locations. So we're working with people like wind farms uh, that they don't have service. So a traditional web form won't work because they don't have signal. So we have mobile apps, iOS and Android. So it all works offline. Uh, but it typically is like risk and operations type thing. So mission-critical stuff. Usually people buy products, don't they, for a few reasons. Like it gets them more sales, it saves them money or you know, audit or compliance. So we're auditing compliance first and foremost. foremost. But um, when we work with like people get, collecting storm damage, when things in Florida happen, for example, and we're collecting property damage, uh, they do it quicker, which means they make more money because they can do more inspections and things like that.
2: So, Matt, where did you, see? So you're a Brit that came to America and then yeah. what made this? how did it start? Like, did you go to university? What did you do? Give us some of your background so people can understand yeah. the transition you made to where you're at now.
5: Yeah, like that I'll, I'll do the abridged version for time. <laughs> but like, you know, cuz I've been doing like little businesses since so I was like 15, 16. I had a little t-shirt company and and like a little uh, live music venue company and um <clears throat> but I quit my full-time job when I was 23. I'm now 37, so I was full-time UX UI designer. That's kind of my trade. I never went to university. I just started businesses. Um to me, like I had a base knowledge of design and I was already building websites at like 16, 17. So, I didn't really feel like university wouldn't teach me a ton in design. Anyway, I think if you're going to do law or you're going to do medicine, please go to university. But if you're going to do graphic design, it's slightly different. Right. And so I started doing more and more freelance work. Uh, And eventually I sort of got fed up with doing freelance work because ultimately, you know, you just want to get paid and you want to do what makes the client happy. I wanted to create something that was bigger than just myself. And so Array uh, was one of the first companies that did that. Uh, originally, we worked in uh, marketing with like field marketing people. So one of our first clients <clears throat> with that product was Leah Bennett, which is a massive ad agency you may have heard of. And so they had a field division and we did all the data collection for them. And we worked with Coca-Cola and Nintendo. Uh, and we still continue to work with a lot of those people now. But we realized the problem with field marketing stuff, it's very seasonal, right? So it doesn't matter how good a job you're going to do, it's going to go away. So we moved more into operations and risks. So Four years ago, uh, moved to Austin, Texas, because I found the UK market to be kind of hard to raise uh, early stage capital uh, for a company <clears throat> such as ourselves. So we moved over and uh, got the family settled in. And then year two, we raised a pre-seed round uh, of 1.3 million, and then uh, grew the company from there. And right now, we're just posturing ourselves into a break-even position, so that we've got uh, more options available. So yeah, I my main, my main project and my main love, and but <clears throat> got other ideas and other things I sort of work on as well.
1: Matt, I think one of the things that's really interesting is that, uh, especially when you're talking about enterprise size companies, the idea of introducing new things into their SOPs, into their processes, their systems can often be scary for them. Right. And you're like, well, here's the solution. You guys don't see this here. When, when you're working with these large scale companies, What what are you talking about that's getting them to be willing to take the leap with you when things and you know this, especially in the insurance industry? And I know this because I worked for one of a Fortune 10 companies in another lifetime. Um, These companies are not very easy at making decisions around technology and progressive ideas. How have you been able to make yourself
5: stick out to work with these large companies and to implement your softwares with them? Well, obviously, that's exactly true. And t- historically, the way to solve that is you hire uh, senior salespeople who've got some Rolodex, you know, who, who get into these places. We took a different approach, um, which was how do we uh, land and expand? So how can we start very small? You know, uh, operations departments have a credit card, they can buy small purchases under a $1,000. So how do we kind of Get in there, solve that initial problem they have for an affordable amount, and then grow through the organization. All of our big clients maybe started on <clears throat> a couple of hundred bucks a month, and grew and grew, and grew and grew and grew and grew as they get more trust and more commitment. And our job is to try and uh, get people to become internal evangelists that they they're happy with what we do and they like what we do. And like I said, you know, our job is to make them look like heroes, like ri- raise them up in the organization, so that they you know. And there's multiple companies we've worked with them the staff have won awards or got promotions because <clears throat> these were sticky problems that it couldn't get to fixing and they were able to fix it. Cause these operations people, they're smart people, you know, <clears throat> blue collar workers a lot of the time, they know how to fix the problem. They just don't have the tools to do it. They have Microsoft word and they have Excel. And so we try and give them the tools. So to your question, we try and land expand. So we try and let them have really quick success for a small amount of money and then grow through the organization. And, and last night I got an email from another one of our bigger clients Another use case, another use case, because we just keep knocking them out, and that's how we do it anyway.
2: So, with everyone now panicking with AI and just technology moving so quickly, do you feel? Where I mean, obviously, you're you're an entrepreneur through and through. Like you straight away went, well, I'm not going to university to make websites. Like, but no, but some people can't. They get stuck. They do four years in a graphic design course and realize they could have just gone an internship where do you how to use ai in the future and how do you avoid the pitfalls of a lot of people of you know not not being able to keep moving forward
5: yeah i actually do a talk on this uh when i do different public speaking and it's about i'm i'm personally a dyslexic person right and so uh, you know you one as well welcome welcome to the club and also or oh, non linear thinkers right so we think and approach things a little bit differently so and we have a, you know we have a proclivity towards design entrepreneurship you know um uh, interior design and sort of like architecture because we can three dimensionally see stuff and in my talk what I talk about is that as our superpowers uh, so the the marvel world and the real world merge more you know with you know Virtual reality and augmented reality and AI and things like that. The, like, I don't know if you you know when, when you went to school, your teacher might say, "Well, you, Mike, you need to learn uh, how to add up because you're not going to have a calculator in your pocket when you when you grow up." Oh, well, no, you were wrong about that. And now we have chat ChatGPT as well. And so um, the bridge for nonlinear thinkers that's gone. You know, now we can just get our creative brains engaged engage, and just concentrate on that. So for the people who are creatively minded about problem solving, it's the best time ever because now we don't we have those other barriers removed. I think every company should be thinking about though what their ai play is like we're, we're, we've got stuff we're working on uh, where we're going to be building forms automatically with prompts we're building reports automatically because a big we've talked about forms but we do automation workflow document output reporting and we're going to use ai to help people automatically generate that so if you can imagine we're working with these operations pe- people we're giving them the tools to quickly build this stuff well how can we just make it quicker for them to build quick for them to visualize what they want because the chances are a lot of these blue collar people are like us, mate. They're dyslexic and they're in the blue collar world, but actually they're really smart people who can problem solve. Um, so AI is going to be very disruptive, as I'm sure everybody has t- told you and everyone says it's true. But actually, it's a massive great great opportunity for us to uh, lower the technical bar for people more.
1: Yeah, w- when you're when you're building and growing, like I love this idea of like getting in and then expanding. I think that's brilliant. Um, I think that's one of the best things that can really, in a way, it's like creating value first for people, right, even though maybe they have to pay a little bit for it to get in the door. When when you think about and I want to stay on AI for a second, especially with what you do, because so much of it is in automation and and building. Um, How do you safeguard yourself from being obsolete in light of the fact that AI moves so fast?
5: Well, actually, one of our investors said this, because, they, they, you know, our investors, are try and keep the finger on the pulse, don't they, of how the market's going. And in the financial markets, obviously, a lot of companies had issues the last year or so, especially kind of some later stage people having problems, um, you know, getting an A round or something like that. One of the other things they obviously are considering is, is how AI is going to affect their portfolio companies. And there is some portfolio companies that will be basically obsolete, like you say. Uh, and their opinion and my opinion is that it doesn't really affect us in the same way. Uh, you can get AI to write, uh, give you the questions for a form, actually. And that's what we're using to then build our form technology. But it couldn't build the tech stack it would need today to do it, uh, what we do. So we're not really going to be as affected as like some companies would be, for sure.
2: I love how you said that because that's the that's the biggest mistake people think that you've still got to be skilled in what you do. Like you said, tech support and still, there's still got to be a human connection. So yeah, you can get certain information, but if you're still not up with what you're doing and collaborating it, you just kind of wear yourself out, right? You, you become lazy.
5: Yeah. I've always said that like as a technology company, you need to look about how you play nice with the market. And like, you know... <clears throat> There's like um, a company, we're doing some stuff with the insurance world, like policy writing and things like that. And it's a company that's built an AI model that will read our forms and see if someone's getting stuck. And so how do you play nice with these, these emerging technologies? And often that's a distribution channel or it's a, it's a PR thing for you to use.
1: Matt, that's powerful, man. Uh, Where can people find out more about Array and learn more about what you guys do?
5: Uh, Buildarray.com, build array, like building a wall buildarray.com and you could there's free trials on there uh there's um free plans on there if anyone wants to try it and we're always happy to help people build stuff get them going make have some success because like you said even if the trials free it's not necessarily free time to do it so we help them with that
1: it's amazing, yes. man. Thank you so much for being here. I know that Dave will be happy to connect with you and have you back on the show. He is in Indianapolis working through a deal with the Indianapolis Colts right now. So I know that he's missing being here this opportunity to learn more about what you do. But thank you so much for being here. It's incredible, man. And people go check out buildarray.com. Thank you. Bye bye. Awesome.
2: All right. We got one more guest. We've got thank you. Uh,
1: it's Dewey? It, I don't Oh, well, I thought they were here. Don is not here yet. So I guess it's uh Mike and Mike in the morning as Dave pointed out. Dude, you you know what's so crazy, man, is like watching AI. This, this whole conversation this morning about it has just had me thinking like, you know, as entrepreneurs, business owners, change makers, leaders like you and I and many of the people watching this, like how do you really use AI? Like how do you really take this thing that's one of probably, if not the greatest, greatest tool for business owners ever and utilize it and use it in a way that helps, you know, exponentially grow you are are there I'm curious Mike, are there ways that you're using AI now uh, as a as entrepreneur and business owner? You know, it's such a really good question,
2: because I'm like, so old school, when like, I handwrite things. And when I write, I do my own research, like I try to like, when I read a book, for example, I, I put uh, like a, a thing at the front and I write down the references because I physically, the way my brain works, uh, I have to learn that way with dyslexia. But now I try to do it in a way of like, okay, if I'm going to do content, how can I use it to make sure my content moves quicker, is more efficient. And the one thing that I struggled with, um, is, uh, instead of it, i got to use the AI to document correctly. And I think, mm-hmm. The one thing that that won't trap you and won't trap me, and I was watching it the other day, is there's artificial intelligence can't buy authenticity. So at the end of the day, I still want to go see you live, and and a robot can't replace Mike live, right? So we've got to use it to gather, uh, but we've still got to be authentic in it, telling that message. But if we can use it to get the message out quicker and document quicker, then I think it serves us. Because at the end of the day, with what you and I do, our stories, you know, come from a dark place and there's got a lot of light in them. You can't buy our stories in authenticity. Mm -hmm. So, you know what I mean? So I try to find the balance of, I do need it, I'm gonna be honest, otherwise you fall behind, because you've gotta be putting the stuff out there. But I don't rely on it in the sense of, I still like to do my own research. Some for documenting, I have to like keep up to speed and document it and use it. And if it helps me write a, a script a little more efficiently, yeah. But you know, it's the way I use it in that way personally.
1: Yeah, I, I'm doing the same, man. And I think that a big part of it is sometimes if I can script things out, it'll help my brain actually make more meaning of the thing I'm even trying to do. So I I totally understand that. Uh, looks like where Lucas said Don will not be joining us, Mike, today.
2: All right. So it's your turn. You know what? Well, I wanted to really hear from Donna. tell you why um, it's funny because uh, she has IBS, she had IBS and she's a doctor that kind of goes through all the nutrition stuff. So it was funny because I was like, oh, this would be really cool to ask someone from Yale who had IBS and went to Italy and then her stomach healed up because of all the processing here. Mm. But um, let's, my takeaway today is this, um, you know, and I think the AI thing is really important so people don't get overwhelmed. Be authentic telling your story, but don't, don't be dated, uh, in, in not keeping up with things, find the balance between you. It's like a perfect, perfect example, right? Someone got upset with me and they asked me if I ever use a pull-up machine. I said, no. And they're like, why? And I'm like, because pull-ups are one of those things that I grew up with as a kid playing rugby if you can't do a pull-up, you need to improve your strength now, as you get older it's okay to use the pull-up assistance because your body may you know right but start off with the basics so uh, use the ai absolutely but also do the basics and other things that help you maintain your own mechanics because once the machine comes over there's a difference between pushing your weight and using the machine weight learn with the basics once you master the basics with the basic forms the pull-ups then it's okay to use the machine. So I think the same goes with AI.
1: Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. Um, My biggest takeaway for the day is just looking at and and again, going to the storytelling piece that everybody has a story to tell everyone deserves. I mean, that's a huge part of what office hours is, man. Mike, we're here every week telling stories together Wednesday, whether it's 5am or 5pm, we are here sharing, telling stories and, and using our our voices, our missions and our messages to change the world. And I think that one of the things that was incredibly powerful, thinking about what, what Karen laid out, is that even the the highest level executives and leaderships and all all people of all aspects of scopes of business the thing that they do even if they're just sharing data is they're telling stories and so just a reminder to me like you're in story matters the words that you have say matter um, but being able to craft them is also a skill that one must learn
2: agreed All right, Mikey, well, you have a safe flight to New York, travel safe, get some rest, and I'll see you next week. And like always, we wish Dave, wherever he's in Indiana, happy, safe travels. I
3: love you, man, and see you next week. All right, brother. Love you, too. See you guys. Thanks for being here.